This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, August 31st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. An Oklahoma judge has hit Johnson & Johnson with a more than $500 million fine for the company's part in the current opioid crisis. The path taken by Oklahoma was to sue Johnson & Johnson's activity as a public nuisance. Cato's Walter Olson discusses the too-long history of states using public nuisance law to bring dollars into state coffers. You know, shortly after this verdict was announced, I heard on the radio that uh, Johnson & Johnson had been found guilty. Now, that's a standard of evidence that applies in criminal court, not so much in civil court. It's terminology you you would find in in a criminal case and that is not used in a civil case. Okay. So what did the judge find Johnson & Johnson liable for having done? The case was decided not under product liability, which is usually how companies get tagged with that kind of verdict, but under something called public nuisance law. And that is one of the reasons the case is so controversial and so widely watched. Public nuisance law uh, has a long history in common law, but it would typically be found in cases of local contact. You could sue over smoke or noise or wandering animals, uh, maybe a body house or something that uh, disturbed the quiet of your neighborhood or uh, reduced your ability to enjoy it. And what has happened in more recent years is that lawyers in ambitious, typically um, industry-wide or billion-dollar litigation have been trying to deploy public nuisance law uh, in entirely new directions that would have dumbfounded the (laughs) judges from not that long ago, saying that, for example, the uh, sale of guns uh, is a public nuisance. And that was tried in many cases until Congress shut it down with the legislation that that closed down the, the, the gun litigation. But they've also tried it with, for example, climate change. Now, climate change, uh, you know, no matter how serious a, a problem it is, it's not something that uh, where you can find close causal connections between what one company did 10 years ago and the way in which uh, CO2 levels are changing, but uh, nonetheless, public nuisance theories were tried and have generally been rejected by judges. So with respect to climate change, I could understand that being a public nuisance, whether or not you can apply uh, causality or liability may be another, ca- another story entirely, but it definitely seems to, at least in my mind, fit this uh, the, the general idea that what you're doing is causing a problem that is absorbed by everyone in an area. Historically, it was usually necessary that you prove a, more of a direct link between what they did and what you suffered. And that's why the nuisance theories were not uh, very applicable to someone who had not contributed more noise than 500 other people had contributed to your having a noisy neighborhood. But clearly, when other people's decisions intervene, uh, that's when you lose even more connection to traditional nuisance law. And the gun cases show that because, of course, none of these guns were going off by themselves. There was always someone committing a crime with them. Uh, And likewise, in the opioid litigation, the idea was that simply having uh, sent too many opioids to 
uh, wholesale or other initial market was itself enough to create a public nuisance, even though none of them wound up in the hands of any patients without a doctor in between writing a prescription. Yeah, but uh, in the case in these kinds of cases where you have uh, like many attorneys general very interested in maybe applying this to problems associated with opioids in their state, it's hard to sue lots of doctors in one big case, right? It is hard to sue lots of doctors, and these mass tort episodes are crucially shaped by questions of selecting the defendants that are considered to be ripest to be sued. And in the case of opioids, uh, if you've just been seeing the news coverage, which has been tending to demonize one or another household name, big company, uh, uh, followed by another, you might not realize that the great majority of pills dispensed uh, as the problem of overprescription uh, built and built in recent years, the great majority were from generic drug companies, that is, not companies that were selling them for very high prices, but typically uh, low overhead operations that uh, weren't relying on patents. And those don't make nearly as good a demon. And so you hear about Johnson & Johnson, the defendant in the Oklahoma case, you might not guess that Johnson & Johnson's role in the opioid market was very limited, something like 3% of the market, of which its main product, I believe, was a fentanyl patch. Now, that happens to be very useful for hospital patients, but not much abused. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that you can snort or whatever. And so... Johnson & Johnson's share in Oklahoma was even short, smaller than that. It was more like 1% or 2%. So you have uh, a problem with many, many different uh, uh, institutions and people contributing to cause it. But by the time you get to litigation, they have focused in on someone with a lot of money that they want to sue. Now, uh, Jeff Singer, our colleague, says it's essentially nothing less than a shakedown. Uh, he notes that Purdue Pharma and Teva Pharmaceuticals settled. Um, well, why did the Johnson & Johnson choose to take this to court? It, you never know without being in their shoes, but sometimes the one that doesn't settle is the one that feels more confident that it didn't do anything wrong or that it can defend its conduct in some way, uh, or simply the one with more of a reputation to defend. And Johnson & Johnson is usually considered of these various companies, the one that has the highest standing as far as consumers have entrusted it for a long time, buying consumer products that have the Johnson & Johnson name on them, all that sort of thing. So it has more to lose, not just financially, but also in terms of reputation by um, offering to settle. So what is public nuisance law if applied more widely to uh, problems that are you know, largely I guess they're not, in a sense, public nuisances as you and I would think of them. That is, loud noise, um, some sort of like emitting smoke or something like that into the air. That's that's what I think of as a public nuisance. As the law changes, and traditional nuisance law would give you a legal remedy of making them stop, whereas that's not so much of interest to the lawyers who've recruited many states and counties to sue. They want... Uh, hard cash. So they turn these into uh, uh, damages suits. But 
really, it's limited only by the imagination. It has certainly been talked about over the years. It, it isn't uh, going at the moment as a litigation category, but they tried it a while ago to uh, sue over alcohol producers uh, on the grounds that the costs of alcoholism to are also significant for governments that pay these things. You know, one of the big uh, parts of the formula here that we should worry about as libertarians and whether or not we're libertarians, frankly, is plugging in the governments as surrogate payers on this because it's one thing to have one of these things uh, float out over your property and reduce its value by producing a cloud or, or, of smoke or whatever. But the governments have undertaken uh, the health costs. Remember, this all dates back to the tobacco litigation. They undertake these health costs. At the same time, they were taxing uh, tobacco. They then say, well, we undertook the health costs, but you owe it to us because uh, you made the population sicker. Now, it was certainly widely speculated at that point that they would try to figure out some way to go after junk food and fast food uh, and and the public kind of snorted, and, and that was so unpopular. Uh, but in the case of opioids, you have a very angry public because the disaster from opioids has taken uh, lives that have touched almost every family. So you have people willing to suspend some of their ordinary skepticism and consider... Uh, legal theories that might seem far-fetched otherwise. On top of that, you've got public choice problems. Each of these tends to be filed in a state court system. Uh, they avoid the federal courts for most part. And so they ask in Oklahoma, they ask the judges or they ask the uh, uh, population generally, uh, how do you think of uh, a verdict that would bring hundreds of millions or billions of dollars into the state for programs you might find good uh, at the expense of people outside the state. Would you like to do that? So judges that rule this way are not necessarily going to be unpopular with the voters or with the political class, depending on who uh, keeps them on the bench. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>